All right, I'm going to throw a lot of scripture at you, partly because people have a tendency when they hear something new to think that, I don't know, I just woke up one morning and thought, oh, this sounds good. Um, But we're looking at the cross, the cross of Jesus, the, the passion of Christ, but in a way that's probably different, certainly different than I've ever looked at it before in this light or context. And so I'm guessing it's probably new for most of you, although it's going to resonate with a lot of the truth that you already know. But this verse really went off inside me. And again, I'm going to work with some of the translations of the passages here because uh, when you go into the actual Greek language, it's just interesting the way some of this stuff gets translated. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 says this. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5. 2 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Now, if you come from a very legalistic or moralistic view of Scripture so that you think that everything that God's doing is obsessed with what's right and with what's wrong, when you read this Scripture about examining yourself, and the way I always heard it preached was to look for something wrong, <laughs> to look for what's wrong inside of you, examine yourself, test yourself, that kind of a thing. But if we just let the verse speak for itself, really all he's saying is go, go inside and examine. So not, it's not examine <clears throat> in the sense, <clears throat> excuse me, of taking a written exam or an oral exam. It's more examining in the sense of, uh, uh doctor, uh, phlebotomist, whoever <clears throat> looks at your blood samples, looks under the microscope to examine it. <clears throat> Or to give you, you go to the doctor for an examination. It's, it's, so it's, it's different, right? So examine, go within to see what you can find. Go within to see what you can see, right? And then when, it, when he's saying test yourself, it's like the idea of prove this to yourself. That's kind of the idea in the, the original language. Prove it out by experience. Go within and examine yourself and prove something to yourself uh, and what you're supposed to, exi- when you go within and examine, what you're supposed to see is that Jesus Christ, not just Christ, Jesus Christ is in you. Now, wait a minute, I thought he was in heaven and Christ was in us, right? So this is a command of scripture. Examine yourself. Do you not know that Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. That's kind of a bad translation. What it means there is unless, of course, you fall short. So, in other words, it, you're, you're only in the faith. All right, so here's how he says it. Let me read it again. I don't, I don't like how I'm getting this across. Let's back up and do this again. Examine yourselves. So, that kind of an examination. You're going within and looking yourselves. To see whether you are what? In the faith. So the issue is, are you in the faith? And what is the issue about being in the faith? Is it about believing that Jesus died for your sins? Not in this verse, it's not. Is it about believing that you were a sinner? Rotten sinner saved by grace, not in this instance. Is it about uh, whether or not you can quote the Nicene Creed, which is what the church in the 4th and 5th century said, this is what you have to be to be a Christian. 
It's this, to see whether or not you're in the faith. Do you not know for yourselves, do you not know yourselves that Christ Jesus is in you? So in other words, to be in the faith, Christ Jesus has to be an internal reality in your mind. So when you fall short is when you don't see Christ Jesus in you. Then you're not in the faith. Do you get it? So to be in the faith is to see Christ Jesus in you. To fall short is to not be in the faith and to see Jesus Christ outside of you. Right? Stay with me. Now, Romans 8. I want to look at a couple things Paul said, and then we're going to look at John. Something from John's gospel, but I have to lay this foundation because people think I'm teaching Gnosticism because they don't really know what Gnosticism is. <clears throat> Pastors. Most of you don't care what Gnosticism is, but somebody out there does. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit <clears throat> have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So it's all about mindset. Everybody say, it's all about mindset. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. He's having to do with your mind. Get it? Is your mind controlled by the spirit? Is it spiritual? Or is your mind controlled by the flesh? And when he says flesh, he's not talking about your sinful nature. I'm reading from the New International Version, the latest translation, which was done in 2011. My first Bible that I studied was a New International Version, and I got it in 1989. The version, whenever it was translated, that I got, because I don't know the year it was done, but I got it in 89. When you read these passages, it says, it does not say flesh or realm of the flesh. It says sinful nature. Because the theological persuasion of the time, the predominant one, was that you had two natures inside of you. But they've changed it because it was bad translation. He's, and, he's, and he says, in the realm of the flesh, or the realm of the flesh is simply that which is dominated by the five senses. That which is dominated by this physical world without any sense of God's presence, any sense of the invisible, any kind of spirituality, right? So he talks about two minds. One mind governed by the flesh, or let's call that for today the lower self or the lower nature. It's not sinful, it's just lower because it's fallen. And it's mind. So this is a person, all they think about is, is carnal stuff. And by carnal, I don't mean, you know, the Playboy channel. I, really, I just mean they think about physical stuff. Their physical life, their life here on this earth. Got it? The spiritual mind is that which then opens up to the spirit that opens up to the presence of God, that opens up to a, a spirituality and a purpose that is from God that is beyond that. 
So it's all about the mind. If the mind is controlled by the physical realm or the flesh realm, it's death. If the mind is controlled by the spirit, then it is life and peace. Right? Got it? Because Christ Jesus is where? In you. All right, good. Now, John actually says the same thing. In John chapter 1, I'm going to take you briefly, kind of, we're just going to look over. I'm going to give you a bird's eye view of this today. Now, in in every translation that I can find in the English, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, right? But the older translations, before the Reformation, and I'm thinking back to Cyril of Alexandria, who I think was writing a commentary in the 2nd or 3rd century. And so we have quotes from the Gospel of John the way he wrote it in the 2nd and 3rd century. Reads this way. And the Word became flesh and dwelt within us. Or dwelt in us. And the word dwelt there means to tabernacle or set up his tent. And the word became flesh and set up his tent inside of us. And we beheld his glory. Now, if you have an honest translation of the Bible that has footnotes. I love some of these Bibles that have footnotes. And you'll see a a number or a letter next to it. And if you look off in the side, it will say, or within us. They're at least being honest. They're at least telling you, this is what it really says, but we can't make it fit, so we changed it to this. (laughs) Because the church has looked at Jesus only from a historical perspective, and they've looked at it in a very carnal way, meaning not in a spiritual way, but in a physical way as a historical, literal event. Now, it's important for you to understand, I believe in a... Historical, literal Jesus. I believe in a historic, literal crucifixion. And I believe in a historic, literal resurrection. What I'm trying to deal with is, why did God do that? And what does it mean? So understand, Paul says, if you're going to be in the faith, you've got to look inside and and know that Christ Jesus is in you. And John says, the word became flesh and dwelt within us, and we beheld his glory. So here's what I believe with all my heart the church has totally missed. And you start talking about this and people get all riled up, especially religious spirits, get all riled up and will accuse you of heresy right away. Don't even talk to you. Don't even try to get an understanding of what you're thinking. They're just right out of the chute. They're going to accuse you of heresy because there is a system of control that has been in place since at least the fourth century of external Christian religion that filtered down through Europe that wants to control people and not empower them to see what really happens inside them. So they want you to look everywhere else but inside you. And if they do, and if you do look inside you, they tell you how rotten to the core you are, how depraved you are, how totally sinful you are, how deceitful and wicked your heart is, which is a horrible translation of that verse in Jeremiah 17. 
But the apostles and the gospel, the whole point of it is to look inside. The whole point of what Paul is saying is to say, test yourself, whether you're in the faith, look inside yourself, examine yourself, and discover the Jesus Christ that's inside you. Not the Jesus Christ that walked 2,000 years ago, and not the Jesus Christ that was crucified on Calvary, but the Jesus Christ that's inside of you and inside of me. That's where you're supposed to look. That's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. And John's gospel is telling you the same thing. Theologians, Bible scholars will call John's gospel the come and see gospel. Because Jesus, the the disciples ask him, where do you dwell? See, we we miss the whole thing because we're bent on taking it historically and literally. And we miss the whole point of what John's trying to say. Go back, I challenge you, to take this view and go back and read John's gospel and see how it opens up for you. That John's gospel is the come and see gospel within. That his point is, the Word became flesh and dwelt within us, and we beheld His glory inside us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We beheld His glory inside of us, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Then the disciples come and ask Him, in chapter 1, when the first followers come and ask Him, Lord, where do you dwell? And He says, come and see. And the whole point you're supposed to get is that he shows you. I mean, are they asking him, hey, let's go see your pad. Let, let's go see your, your place. Let me see your new house. I want to see the car. Where do you dwell? See, the whole point of it is for you to see he dwells in you. Which is why when you get to chapter 14, 15, 16, Jesus says, in that day you will know something. You'll know what? That I am in the Father and the Father is in me and I'm in you. And if you abide in me, if you make your home in me, if you dwell in me, where do you dwell? Come and see. If you dwell in me, I will dwell in you and you'll bring forth much fruit. So the whole thing is a picture for us. It is, it, it, it. The way it's painted is a symbolic picture for us that is a mirror for us to show us who we really are and to show us the process that we have to go to to move from being carnally minded to spiritually minded. To move from death to the place of life and peace. That's the whole point. That's why Paul could say, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We are transformed into the same image from glory to glory. But we've kept everything outside of us, everything apart from us, because that's what the religious system wants to do. It wants to rob you of the treasure that's inside you. It wants to blind you to who you really are. They don't want you to go inside because they don't want you to wake up to who you are, put on the mind of Christ, have a consciousness that is full of power, full of love, real love, full of joy and abiding peace and has the power to work miracles and transform reality. They don't want people waking up to that because they want to control you. And it's been that way since actually since your Bibles were put together. So while we're on the topic of the Bible, you realize the Bible was given to you. God bless the Catholics, but the Bible was given to you by a state run church. Well, we were just at a Catholic wedding. My cousin got married yesterday. So. No, I like that priest, man. He, he got to move on. And he also offered... Well, anyway. Out of that. It, it was given to you by a state-run church after Constantine made Christianity the compulsory religion of Rome. And he wanted to reunite the crumbling Roman Empire. And he used the power of the church to reorganize his power 
And the Bible was a byproduct of that. And that happened in the 4th century. Which means that, that for 400 years, Christians did not have what you have in your lap. And it was not their standard of truth. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what anybody tries to tell you. That is just historical fact. And when they came together to decide what books were going to go in the Bible, we don't really know, you know, have a real good historical account or accurate account of what happened there, but there are reports in tradition that there were fist fights over what book was supposed to go in the Bible. Because there wasn't just 27 books, there was hundreds of books that were gospels that were written by other apostles and followers of Jesus. And so how did they decide that it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And so tradition says this, tradition says that they, they, they threw the books on on the floor and they prayed all the manuscripts and they prayed and they said Lord the ones you want in the Bible (laughs) let them be on top of the table when we get home or when we come in the next day so they come in the next day and Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are sitting on the table and they go oh it's an answer to prayer the only problem is how do you know that some of those guys that weren't fist fighting just snuck in and stuck the ones that they wanted at the top and it was whoever got there at the end that won, you know. Maybe these other Gospels were, oh, good, I'm, I'm getting there right before they show up, you know. Oh, yeah, somebody put these. No, we're not putting these. I mean, it probably happened four or five times during the night. You know, somebody picked theirs. Then the next group comes in, they're sneaking in. Oh, let, oh let, let, let's put these. I mean, you, you understand what I'm saying? That's how you got your Bible. Now, there is a book called the Acts of John. The Acts of John. A-C-T-S. And this is interesting because the Acts of the Apostles was written by Luke, who was a companion, reportedly written by Luke, who was a companion follower of Paul the Apostle. The Acts of John is written by someone who reportedly was a companion and follower of the Apostle John. Now, why did, now, when the church decided what the canon of Scripture was going to be, this was part of your Christian tradition, the Acts of John, until the 6th century, so 200 years after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When some pope or ruler decided, we can't have people reading the Acts of John, and they had them all burned. Now, that's what Jesus taught. Somebody agrees, disagrees with you, go burn their literature. Do you find anything remotely like that in... The person of Christ. Because he's not afraid of truth. So why do people burn stuff? Because they don't want you to see it. They don't want you to read it. And then later, you know, they recovered copies of it. And so here's an interesting thing about John, the, the Acts of John. During the crucifixion, John feels compelled to leave the scene because the lights go out, right? The sun, everything goes dark. And he goes into a cave, and when he goes into a cave, Jesus appears to him in his spiritual body. And Jesus tells him, you see that that out there? He says, says, I'm not suffering out there. And, And if you want proof for this, before you call me a heretic, if you want proof for this, get an art book about Christian art and go back and look at the earliest paintings of the crucifixion. Because in the earliest paintings of the crucifixion, Jesus is smiling with a halo over him. With the... He says, I'm not suffering here. And what they will say of me that I suffered, I did not suffer. And he goes on to point John to something within himself. 
And John comes running out of that experience. He comes back and he sees Christ on the cross with the thieves. And he sees all the people. And he sees everybody wailing and mourning. And he says this. He says, everything that God has done here, he has done symbolically that men might come to the knowledge of the truth and find salvation. See, what our Western tradition taught us was that we have this monster God up there who's just angry and, and has some kind of psychological disorder. Here's what I mean. He, he has a psychological conflict inside himself where he is both just and holy and loving. And, and, and sin is central to all of it. Because please understand, whether it's somebody controlling you in your family to get you to do what they want, or someone controlling you in the White House to get you to do what they want, or any form of government, or somebody in a church house in a pulpit trying to control you to get you to do what you want, you have to think less of yourself than you do of them. You have to think that somehow you need them, or somehow you, you have to have them, or somehow they're saving you, or, or otherwise the dependence can't be created. So sin has to be central to all of it, and it was central to all of it, so that they could keep people in the Catholic Church, which is why they baptized infants. Because you're born in sin, so you're less than, so you need us or you're going to go to hell. It's why priests, state-sponsored priests forgave sins, because you need the state in order to have your sins forgiven so you don't go to hell. It's why so it's why they bow down and worship the the... the I'm sorry. No, the cookie. Uh, the Eucharist. I mean, seriously, they hold it up. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away your sin, right? I was just there yesterday. I just saw it, right? And only the priest could bless it so that it became the Lamb of God. Why? Because it was sponsored by the state. Why? To keep, to keep in your mind that you're a sinner every week. Every week reminds you that you're a sinner. Every week reminds you that you need the state-sponsored priest and external religion. And then the Protestant Reformation came out of that mess. And then evangelicalism comes out of Puritanism. And I don't want to say that. That'll offend too many people. The Puritans weren't holy. They were angry. Go study their history. And that's what the evangelical movement comes out of. And it's all predicated upon this angry God. Or a God who can't decide if he's angry or loving. I mean, really, this God that loves you so much, did he really have to require the torture of this young man to be able to forgive you for your sins? Could he not come up with a better way to forgive you than to beat the crap out of Jesus and pierce him and nail him and tear his body and all that stuff. Did he have to do that to get over his anger? What kind of God is that? What kind of human being is that? See, Jesus would make comparisons. He'd look at our best and say, if you being evil know how to do good, how much does your heavenly Father in heaven do even better? But heck, that, that Father's worse than my earthly Father. I mean, my earthly Father could forgive me without having to beat up my sisters. And even if he did, he did it himself. This God is like Don Corleone. You know, he's got to hire hitmen to do it for him. He, 
I mean, you could almost have more respect for this God if he, if he, if he came down with a cosmic cross and a cosmic nails and did it to his own son. But no! He, he, he's gotta get some, some soldier or something that, somebody that doesn't even know who the boss is, doesn't even know who the Don is, that's, that's calling the shots. To do it for him. Filled Satan, filled Judas' heart with Satan so he betrays him and, Get those Roman soldiers angry so that they crucify him. And God's looking down and saying, oh, blood, 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 give me blood. Oh, I feel better now. Oh, I feel so much better now that I see the blood. Enter into my kingdom. Now there is peace on earth. Really? God couldn't come up with a better way to get peace on earth or a better way to forgive you than to do that mess? Really? Think about it, saints. Uh, this makes me really, really, really popular with evangelicals. But that kind of God, that kind of image of God, you put that central before people, they will have anxiety disorders. They'll be filled with self-doubt. Oh, but God's at peace with me now. Yeah, but look what he had to do. And what'd you do anyway? What'd you do anyway? Like how many people are, do you have responsible for them swimming with the fishes? Most of us haven't done real atrocities. Most of us are, you know, when people talk about sin, they're not, most, most of the time they're not preaching to people with real atrocities. They're preaching to people who have everyday normal kind of stuff. They, they cursed out the guy that cut them off or, or smoked a few cigarettes and God has to, oh, he's got to beat the snot out of his son to forgive him for doing that. You know it's true, saints. And it captures your mind and it defeats you. But in the second century, the Acts of John, he says, look, Jesus didn't suffer and none of this was done so that God literally could feel better about you. Is that really the God you want to believe in? Think about the God we portray to people. God is angry, but he's loving, but he can't resolve that conflict within himself. So he needs psychotherapy. (laughs) But instead of psychotherapy, he does child abuse to the I even heard somebody I couldn't believe it I I had to rewind it three or four times as a preacher I admired I thought are you listening to yourself he said let me give you an illustration to help you understand the gospel this is what the gospel is like it's like a person it's like in a family you have two sons and you've got one son that's always naughty Josiah and you've got another son who more or less does what you want Elijah my my house he didn't say that but that's those are my son's names and that's true and, and he says, and, and, and the, the one son who's always doing bad, God, God wants to punish the one, or the father wants to punish the one son who's always doing bad, but he loves that son too much, so he takes the son that's doing good and he whips him with the switch. And then he goes and embraces the son that's disappointed him. Kind of brings it down to earth, doesn't it? But that's the one I got saved on. I got to believe that Jesus died in my place so that God could be good for me. Come on, saints. So that's the God we put up before people. And then he's going to destroy the whole thing in a nuclear holocaust. After getting all his people to go to Jerusalem anyway so the Antichrist can kill a third of them. So that the blood of his people can flow to the the, bridle of a horse. All right, I need to get off that. And don't you want to serve this God? No, not really.
Not from a place of love. Maybe from a place of, that's a scary God. I'm afraid of that God. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to, I don't want to have my head cut off. I don't want to get the mark of the beast. I don't want to burn in the lake of fire. So yeah, I'll get saved. But that's the best they have to offer. And it doesn't jive with the Jesus even of scripture. It really doesn't. And so John is telling us in his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt within you and come and see his dwelling place. So the whole thing is, and, and if, if, if we can trust the acts of John, we can at least trust the acts of John as much as we can trust the acts of the apostles because there's no difference between the two except some council in Rome in the 4th century decided one belonged and one didn't. But see, if it's symbolically so that you can see something about yourself so that you can come to salvation, then you don't need a state-sponsored priest to baptize you or uh, to remit your sins in confessional. Or And so Constantine loses all his power. So is it any wonder that they put together the ones that they did and then burned the ones that they did? And you can go back to sleep. It's okay. <laughs> you can go back and take the blue pill or whatever if you remember the Matrix. All right, got to get into my message. Ugh. Is it really that late? Somebody's like, oh my God, he's going to keep going. All right, let's just take away more Sunday school. John 3, all right, I want you to, this is really, really interesting. John, John 3, 16, most known verse, right, right, probably anywhere in the world, right? Most people don't know anything about the Bible, they can quote John 3, 16, or at least that's how it used to be. So let's, let's do it, saints. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Right? Most people could quote that, but they've never put it in its context. Now, here's the interesting thing. In the new translation of the NIV, it's got the words of Jesus in red. Everybody see that? All right. John 3.16 starts here in the black. Every other Bible I have is still read as though Jesus is saying this about himself. But when you look at the actual language of it, it makes sense that they put it in the black. Because what, what they're saying is the, the stuff above is what Jesus said, and the stuff below is John's commentary about the meaning of what he said. So when he says, John 3.16, for, so for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, it's a commentary by John on what Jesus said. So don't you think we ought to look at what Jesus actually said before we look at the commentary how many of you think that's a good idea to do that so here's what he says in verse uh, 10 now this is nicodemus let, let me just give you con- the full context nicodemus is a teacher he comes in and he says he says teacher what what must we do to, you know i no he doesn't say that he says i recognize that you're a teacher that came from god no one could do the signs and wonders that you do unless he came from god And Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless you're born again, is what we say, but in the original language, it's born from above. That's another place where they lie to you, but they put a little footnote to let you know what it actually says, if you have a good Bible. It's not born again, it's born from above. Everybody say it with me, born from above. Unless you are born from above, you cannot enter the kingdom, right? And that which is born of the flesh is flesh. He says you have to be born of the water and the spirit, right? Because this is what, this is important to get the last part of where I'm going. Let me slow down. You must be born from above. No one can enter the kingdom unless he's born of the water and of the spirit. In response, because Nicodemus says, how can I be born twice? Do I have to enter again into my mother's womb? 
So Jesus basically says, no, it's not a physical mother. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. But because spirit in Hebrew is always in the feminine tense, always, Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is a she, not a he. So it's natural then that Jesus would say, no, there's a womb of the Spirit or there's a spiritual mother out of which you have to be born in order to enter the kingdom. Got it? So then he says, Nicodemus asks, how can this be? And Jesus answers in verse 10, you are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? For no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Watch this. John is commenting on Jesus' comment here. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. Well, what does that mean? If I were to ask those of you that never heard me teach on the serpent in the wilderness, what does that mean? Do you even know what that means? As Moses lifted up a serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up? Hmm? Life, but where does he get the, the illustration of the serpent? Why not a lamb? Where does he get the, do you know, do you know the story of Moses lifting up the serpent? Do you know why Moses lifted up the serpent? Because see, to understand John 3.16, you have to understand the serpent. We read the commentary, we don't even know what it's commenting on. We have no idea what it's commenting on. Most people have no clue what that story is about with the serpent in the wilderness. Do I have your attention? Yeah. <laughs> Do I have your interest a little bit? Alright, come with me to Numbers 21. Numbers 21, verse 4. Children of Israel, they left Egypt, they're on their way to the promised land, they're traveling through the wilderness. Verse 4, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go up around Edom. To go up around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. And they spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt? Everybody say with me, up out of Egypt. So they're going up out of Egypt and they're going up. Up to go around Edom. Got it? All right. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable fruit food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Notice the word against. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. That anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze. Oh, no wonder God's people are so messed up. It's not bronze. It's fiery. 
If you remember last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit's cross, the fiery cross. He made a fiery serpent and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by the snake and looked at the fiery snake, they lived. That's what Jesus is talking about. Just as Moses put the serpent on the pole, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus didn't say, so must the Son of Man die. He said, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. If you read John's Gospel again, John chapter 8 is one reference you can go to somewhere in that chapter. And John chapter 12 is another place you can go, but you'll find it throughout there. He never refers to his death as a humiliation or as suffering. John does something totally different that Matthew and Mark and Luke never do. In Matthew, Mark and Luke, Jesus says the Son of Man's about to go into the, uh, the, the Jerusalem and be betrayed. He tells you who's responsible for him dying and it's not his father. <laughs> he says, hey, I'm going into the, the, the city to be betrayed by all the religious leaders, all the power brokers and the religious system that want to keep people dependent on it. That That's who's going to kill me. But in John's gospel, he never talks about it as suffering and he never talks about it as humiliation. He talks about it as exaltation. He talks about it as his being lifted up. It's about a rising... It's not about God punishing so that, that He can be... It's, it's about humanity rising in Christ. So, so Nicodemus says, you, you're come, you've come from God. You, and, and Jesus says, you have to be born from above. What do you mean? I have to, how, can I be, how can I be born in my mother's womb again? No, no, no. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is... Spirit, that which is carnally minded is death. That which is spiritually minded is life. Then he's talking to them about this being born from above. And he says, nobody's ever ascended except the, to heaven except the one who came down from heaven. Right? And just like Moses did that with the serpent on the pole, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that all that believe in Him might have life. And then John goes on and comments and says, that John 3.16 is about this. So what is a serpent on a pole? Let me, let me give you just a couple things about a serpent on a pole. A serpent on a pole through the ages, going all the way back to ancient Egypt, was a symbol of alchemy. And alchemy is about the ability to take base metal and, trans, and, and change it into something precious. Or to turn lead into gold. Right? But what you find out is that it's a symbol of human transformation. All those stories about changing lead into gold wasn't about so you could get rich. It was it was about taking the base materials of your soul and putting it through a process so that you could refine it and bring out the gold or bring out the divine nature. And the serpent on a pole was a symbol of that. Why? Because it was the serpent that caused the fall. It was the serpent that caused Adam to eat at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and fall into the realm of the senses, away from the presence of God and outside of paradise and excommunicated and all that stuff. And what did God do to the serpent? He said, you're going to have to crawl on the ground. You're, your, life is going to be, your life is going to be limited to the earth and dust you're going to eat. So your whole life, it's a picture of the carnal life. It's a picture of the carnal mind. It's a picture of that mind that, that complains about God, that complains about life, that accuses everybody, accuses yourself. It's fault finding. 
and that pulls you out of the realm of, of the spirit and keeps you trapped in this place. So a serpent on a pole is what? A serpent on a pole is the exact reversal of that. It's taking things back before the curse. It's taking things back before the fall that you might have life. Not because God's standing there saying, I'm mad and I'm going to keep you out, but because Adam chose to hide from the presence of God. Adam chose to accuse God. There's a woman that you gave to be with me. And so God says, in that state, you can't eat at the tree of life because you're falling. You're just like that serpent crawling on the ground. Read the story for crying out loud. Look a little bit deeper than whether or not we came from apes. He tells the serpent, you're going to crawl on the ground and you're going to eat dust. Then he tells, then he tells Adam the same thing. You're going to eat from the dust. By the sweat of your brow, skull, you're going to eat. You're trapped in that carnal mindset. Just like that serpent. Because you listen to the serpent and you follow the serpent out of the celestial realms of paradise and into the realms of just this place. So, so the children of Israel, the journey of the, the journey of the children of Israel is, is parabolic. It's symbolic. That's why they go up out of Egypt, because Egypt is a place where you're enslaved totally by your senses and the powers that are controlling you. You're enslaved to political powers, you're enslaved to religious powers, you're enslaved to other people's opinions, you're enslaved to family powers, the matriarch, the patriarch, whatever the case may be, but you're doing somebody else's labor. You're building up somebody else's image, you're building up somebody else's treasury house, you're not free to have pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness without somebody that is a Pharaoh enslaving your life and making your life bitter. And so you're stuck there trying to make bricks without straw. And God sends you a messenger that breaks all that power to lift you up out of Egypt. That's why they always went up out of Egypt. Not just out of Egypt, up out of Egypt. And the promised land is that place where where the land works for you. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a place of rest. It's a place where you will you you will eat from uh, wells. You'll drink from wells that you didn't dig, and you'll eat from vineyards that you didn't plant. And your enemy will come against you one way and flee before you seven ways. In other words, I'm lifting you out of the slavery of a sense-dominated, carnally-minded and ruled mind that is death. And I'm going to lift you up into this place of the spiritual mind where there is life and there is peace and where you can eat from the tree of life and where you can manifest fully who you choose to manifest as one created in the divine image where the divine image of Adam is redeemed, where the divine spark that is in you is raised up up from the lower places and raised up to where it dominates your mind and you become spiritually minded and it is life and peace. And the whole of the Bible is about that process. All of it. Including the crucifixion of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is in you. So if Jesus... If Jesus Christ out there had to be crucified, the Jesus Christ in you has to be crucified. All right. That's where we lose half the congregation. Come with me to John 19 and we'll be done.
Are you guys doing all right? Now watch this. When you look at it symbolically, watch how powerful this is. Verse 16, finally Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went to the place of the skull. Why? Because it's all about the carnal mind and the spiritual mind. Where does the crucifixion take place? It takes place in the face of, or in the place of the skull. It's all there. Calvary comes from a Latin word calvarius, which simply means cranium. It's in your medical books. So every time you're singing about Mount Calvary, you're not singing about a place over there. Just you're singing about a place in here. This is Mount Calvary. Oh, no, I thought it was a place in Jerusalem. Okay. Did you know that John says in the book of Revelation, this one made it into your Bible, I'll let you find it, that Jesus was crucified in Sodom and Egypt? So which is it? Was he crucified in Jerusalem outside the gate or was he crucified in Sodom and Egypt? Because see, Sodom and Egypt, Egypt represents the enslaved carnal mind. And Sodom represents the pleasures that we pursue to get away from the slavery. Lot's name means veil. He chose Sodom because he had the veil of a carnal mind and was pursuing it because it was the better land and he gave Abram the lesser land. And that's the place that Jesus gets crucified. All right. It's in your Bible. The canonized one. There, there they crucified him and with him two others. Let me say two others. One on each side and Jesus in the middle. And then we could go down through this, but I don't want to cover all of it. I want to come to verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. Now that word near there is the same word that John uses throughout the gospel for abiding. Abiding at the cross is his mother. His mother's sister married the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. Notice he didn't call his mother Mary. He said his mother. Watch this. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, if you read that, naturally, carnally, and literally, and historically, and that's all you ever see, then you just see, oh, isn't that good? Jesus wanted to take care of his mom. Jesus fulfilled the last of the commandments. I had somebody, Jesus had to be perfect, so he had to fulfill all the commandments, so he honored his mother, and that's showing you that he was the spotless lamb, so God could crucify him so he could forgive your sins. So watch this. See, John's telling you to look where? Come and see where. So when you're looking at the at the gospel at the crucifixion story, where are you supposed to be looking? So that's why he says he's crucified at the place of the skull with two others there with him. But the whole time he says lift it up. (laughs) 
So what gets crucified? So here's what we're talking about. So what we're talking about is, is there is a death that goes on in the mind, but here's the death. It's the death to all the pain. See, it's the, the serpents came and did what? They went against God and the serpents came and did what? They bit them and they caused them to have pain and death. The carnal mind is... The carnal mind is... We read it at the beginning. Come on, stay awake with me. Come on, this is so good. You don't want to miss it. Romans 8, 8, what is it? The carnal mind is... Death. The spiritual mind is life and peace. The serpents came and bit them and what did they do? So what does he do? He exalts the serpent by a fiery serpent. The fire of the Holy Spirit. See, so here's, here's the issue. The cross, the death that you're supposed to die with Jesus has nothing to do with, with, with giving up something for Lent. It has nothing to do with suffering and pain and agony. It's not giving up life. It's not giving up the good things in life. For crying out loud, your same Bible says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Paul said God gave us all things that we might freely enjoy them. John said Jesus come, that came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And then the church will tell you, you gotta give all that stuff up because God God's got some neuroses that he's still working out. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be. I, I kind of do. Yeah, I kind of do mean to be offensive. I, I, it's, it's just true. I do. Because this stuff holds people in captivity. Do, do you see it? So, so it's, about, it's about the fear. It's about the guilt. It's about the shame. It's about the hurt. It's about everything that's stinging inside your consciousness. Everything that's hurting you inside your life. All of that stuff. And, and, and we want to get rid of it. We want to take it away. And we don't understand that's been our problem. We've been running from our pain. I, I woke up one day and I realized a lot of the important decisions I made in my life I made because I was trying to run from my pain. I was making it out of my pain. I thought I was hearing God. And maybe I was, maybe I wasn't. Maybe I would just created some God that I thought was speaking to me so I could get away from my pain. Because that's what we want. God, take the snakes away from us. But we don't understand. No, then God has to judge that as wrong. He has to judge it as bad. And God does not do that. So instead, what happens is we have to embrace our pain and have it lifted up. Have it lifted up. See, he takes all that, all those parts of you that are in confusion and in turmoil and in pain and in suffering. He says, I'm going to bring it to the cross and I'm going to raise it up by bringing, bringing your consciousness through the fire of the Holy Spirit. That's why it was a fiery serpent that was up upon that pole. Oh. So that, that, that what Jesus represents is represents God in the flesh uh, uh, taking on all of your hurts, all of your pain, all of your trouble, all of your trial, all of your guilt, all of your shame, all the yucky stuff, all of the, uh, the stuff that results from the lower nature, from Egypt and from Sodom, and bringing it through the fire of the Holy Spirit to bring it to the top of the skull so that the, so that the fire can transform it into something beautiful. See, Jesus tells His disciples in John's Gospel, He says, right now you're grieving, but your grief will be turned into joy. Didn't say you'd get rid of your grief. He said, I'm going to take that energy of grief and I'm going to refine it. I'm going to do an alchemy on it. I'm going to take the lead of that pain and I'm going to bring it through the fire until it becomes the gold of joy. In Isaiah 61, I will give you beauty for ashes. Bring to me your ashes and I'll bring it through the fire of the cross and the fire of the Holy Spirit until it ascends to the top of your mind and it becomes beauty. 
I'll give you the oil of joy for mourning. Bring me your mourning and I'll bring it through the process of the cross. And I'll bring it through that fiery serpent and the fire of the Holy Spirit so that what was what was the lower nature inviting you now is an exalted serpent that gives you life. I'll bring it through that fire until it rests on your head as joy. I'll give you the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Bring your heaviness and I'll bring it through the fire of the cross until it's exalted, until it becomes the the garment of praise and it rests upon your head. And you have a consciousness that's dominated by the spirit, not by the flesh. You could follow it. Here's your death to self. You could follow it through the words of Jesus. And I'm done. I promise. Seven words of Jesus. We, I remember I was part of a meeting where we preached those on on uh, Good Friday. I didn't have a clue what, what we were doing. But here's how it sits in your Bible. You ready? Here's how it sits. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because the lower nature always feels forsaken by God. Who didn't go through something at some point in your life and think, where is God? Where was God when I was being abused? Where was God when my son or my daughter died? Where was God when I had this accident? Where was God when this tragedy happened? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? See, that's the part of you. That's the essence of the lower nature. feels forsaken and abandoned by God. And it's all about lifting up something inside you. So God gathers in all those parts of you that feel forsaken by him to raise them up into something else. Next line then is, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's gathering them in to bring them to a place of knowledge. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Why? Because he's dealing with that God-forsaken part, that part of you that feels forsaken by God. Watch the process. He identifies, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. I'm going to take all those parts of you that feel forsaken by God. I'm going to bring them forgiveness and I'm going to bring them to the place where they're exalted into the heavens. Ready for this? Today, with me, you will be in paradise. Not just when you die. Those broken parts of you going through the process of the cross until they rest in your head like paradise. It's all in the Bible. Now this part. Behold your mother. <laughs> Watch how John does this. This is the most beautiful part. This is the most beautiful part. Who did Jesus say, if you're going to enter the kingdom, had to be your mother? Who did Jesus say in John chapter 3, if you're going to enter the kingdom has to be your mama, the spirit. You have to be born of the water and the spirit. You have to be born from above. So when Jesus is lifted up, there abiding at the cross, he sees the spirit, his mama. And he looks at the disciple that he loves. And he says, behold, your mom. And he looks at the spirit and he says, behold, your son. And at that moment, the disciple that Jesus loves takes her into his heart and she stays with him from that moment on. 
And I hate to tell you this, the disciple who Jesus loved was not some coy, humble way of John referring to himself. (laughs) That's some religious lie. Toilet paper. Because you're supposed to be reading about yourself. You're supposed to be, it's not a historical event, it's a come and see event. Where you look inside yourself and you discover at the cross, I am the disciple that Jesus loves. And so he's saying to you, behold your mother who is the spirit. When you come through this process of the cross and all this stuff, you take the part of you that feels forsaken and you bring it up. God says, forgive, forgive you. And into thy hands I commit my spirit. And today you'll be with me in paradise. And he brings those parts up and now he says, oh, I love you for doing that. And he says, here's your mom. Here's the spirit. Let the spirit make her home inside your heart. And then he says, I thirst. Why? Because now that you've been set free from all your pain, you can actually get in touch with what you've really been thirsty for your entire life. Because you no longer have the pain clouding your decisions, making decisions to try to run from your pain. You can truly embrace the God-given desires that have been given unto you so that now the desires of your heart lead you instead of your pain. And so you can say, I thirst. And Jesus said, whoever thirsts, they'll be satisfied. Whoever's thirsty, come and let him drink drink freely of the water of life. I know I'm going a long time today. I'm sorry. If I didn't have to deal with all the traditional junk, we could just get right into the good stuff. And then it is finished. Seven stages from the lower nature to the top of the skull. Processes that that fire takes you through as your consciousness ascends from the lower places into the higher realms of God. That's what it's about. Yeah. Make sense? Lord, forgive me for being obnoxious. <laughs> Irritating religious people. And... Uh, Just pray again, Lord, that whatever said can be powerfully impacting to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.